Um, yeah, I don't know. Okay, here's Mike. Mike Casey. <laughs> first time that I've ever been introduced by the founder of a world religion, and uh, <laughs> as promised, it was, it, was, it was an idiosyncratic experience. Um, you know, in keeping with that idea about the world religion, it's an interesting thing going to art shows. You know, a couple of years ago, I made a show about um, the state of modern art and its commodification. It was called Why We Hate Art. And, um, and tried to answer that question about like why, why we, like the American people, the American nature, that there's a thread that runs through uh, this country that I'm very fond of, but despite uh, the fact that I'm fond of it, it, there's a thread in it that would like to eradicate art, or at the very least uh, make art be as inoffensive as possible so that there was as little of it as possible so it would not get in the way, and certainly not for it to exist in any way that was challenging. Like, so if art becomes uh, denatured, like wallpaper, then it's, it's like much more useful to the people who are, who, are, who are propagating it. I thought of that as I came into this space, because I think the art in this space today is very much not like wallpaper, and I was thinking about how... Um, you know, how provocative the images are laying on the walls and how when people come into a space like this, like if you were an anthropologist in the future and America had succeeded in America's you know, self-made Puritan goals and we didn't have art shows anymore and there hadn't been art shows in a long time and then you were looking back on this experience through some sort of lens and they were able to see a record of the event without knowing precisely what was happening, they would actually think, they might think, that it was a gathering of people together who did not know one another and were here for some sort of public purpose and they weren't sure what until the wine and cheese arrived. And then it's kind of amazing the amount of energy that explodes. Like the whole room sucked in onto that location as though you people have never seen Brie before. Like there was this remarkable thing because I'm pretty sure that most of you, you know, the kind of people who are coming to an art event, like you, you can buy your own Brie and yet the excitement of the free cheese and the wine, there's a pleasure in the, you know, like you have taken your own time out and come to this thing and you have been rewarded for that with this repast. And you know, I work in the theater, uh, we give people fucking nothing. You know, like, we, we, we rob people. I mean, this event is actually free, and they give you wine and cheese. In the theater, we have the audacity to charge you to appear, uh, be, be given nothing, and to be trapped, trapped in the smallest possible seats. You have very luxurious seating. You're moving about freely throughout the cabin. Some of you are even drinking some more of the wine now. It's a very open environment. And you would really think, perhaps, by the framing of it, like, the way in which it works, you might actually think, and this is not to say that people didn't like the art, I think they liked it very much, you might actually think that it was a show about wine and cheese. Because people would look at the art, but it was sort of unseemly to actually look at it too long. Like, it's almost basically un-American to stand and just like, 
Meaning you wouldn't be kibitzing with the other people. And the kibitzing seems to be very central. And so people would look at the art, and I would see them looking at the art as they ate a Triscuit, or as they you know, were turning their body towards someone else, or they were finishing up a conversation. And they would use the art as a way to facilitate their connection to the other person they were standing with. They put their arm up, and they would point at the art, and then they would say something about it. They would say, these have colors, they would say. Or, do you notice the... The printed, the printed making. They would say something, you know, uh, something, something simple, something, something, uh, something that no one could disagree with, because you know, no one actually wants to get into a debate about art uh, at, at an art showing in that way. We always do in our media when we write about art shows. We sort of imagine people fighting about it, but once you're here, that's not really what's going on. Instead, there's sort of this like grand kind of processional, you know, like, like, like everyone's in a very good spirit. There's a warmth in the room. I mean, it's mostly gone now because I'm drawing attention to it. And people grow weary of listening to the large man, you know, calling attention to the thing itself. And I understand that. But previously, you were all in a very good mood. Even You even put up with the world religious leader with the Pinocchio puppet. I mean, you people have been very open-hearted about a large number of weird things that have happened here this afternoon. And you know, I feel uh, implicated a little bit in, in, in the art today because I feel partially um, responsible for it, um, not for its creation and certainly not for any of its genius, but like, I feel like if, there, if anyone is to be blamed for it, and in Puritanism there is always someone who can be blamed, you know, I feel a little bit like it might be my fault. You know, years ago, as Lawrence mentioned, I made a, I made a show called All the Faces of the Moon, and I worked with uh, Larissa Takmakova, and we, we worked on these, on the, on the, on, 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 I was making these monologues, there were going to be 29 chapters in this novel that I would, I would make each night on stage, I would speak for 90 minutes, which looks a lot like what you're seeing now, but like, uh, imagine it far longer, and therefore you're just super grateful that this is what you're getting now. So you've got a much better deal by just being here for the wine and cheese and the fizzy water and not with the paying the money and then being there incredibly long. But this is complex narrative. And then as, as we worked on it together, I, the idea was I, I, I commissioned Larissa. I was like, Larissa, I need you to make 29 oil paintings um, for this show. Each night needs a different oil painting, and they have to be huge oil paintings because each of them has to be on stage behind me, like basically almost like a backdrop. So gigantic oil paintings, 29 of them. And uh, she was like, and when will you need this? And I was like, well, you know, a um, couple months, like a <laughs> month, and a couple, like two months, like two and a half months. And... Um, and, and it was an interesting project because it really collided the concerns of the visual artists and the concerns of the theater. You know, the beautiful thing about the theater is that you have a very real deadline. The deadline is the attention of the people who are staring at you. Like, it is your intentionality right now that is evoking the words that are coming out of my mouth. Like, I would not be telling the story were it not for your presence, because were I to do so, I would be an insane person. I would be standing in my apartment telling the story to no one. You make this art possible. A visual artist is not under the same pressure. 
They create their art with an implied audience in the future, but the moment of the painting, it's actually happening in space and time. They're painting on the canvas. I believe, though I do not know, it is perfectly possible for an artist in that modality to create a painting and not have any concern of what the viewer in the future will see. They might only be concerned of what they are viewing, and maybe even at the distance they are to the canvas, perhaps only in the textures they're using as they paint it. Larissa came from the former Soviet Union long ago when there was a former Soviet Union. And she came to America and got asylum, this thing that doesn't really exist anymore. But you can imagine that there was a time that this was a place people fled to as opposed to fled from. And she came here betting to, to a certain degree on a, a certain bet. And the bet was, you know, that like this place was more free than the place she came from and that this would be a better place for her as a human being than the place she had come from. And, you know, uh, arguably that bet has worked out. At the very least, um, she certainly has found a place in a school full of people whom she's now working with. That would be some of you. And uh, she has certainly managed to have three children and done them in a very Soviet way where she just had them all at once. Uh, she, she, she just, there was no need to sequentially do them. She just shot them all out at once. So... So she had triplets, and she had those triplets before we began working on all the faces of the moon. So it was sort of like, this was the ask, was like, Larissa, would you like to make 29 oil paintings and make them so quickly that no visual artist would probably even agree, like probably it would, it's an insult even to visual artists anywhere to give this kind of deadline. I'd also like you to do it while you continue to care for or at least pay attention to your three young children. Maybe they can just cling to you all over your body like some sort of shawl and just cling to you uh, from your breasts and your head and you just wear them like a coat as you paint two or three paintings at the same time because otherwise you will not hit this fucking deadline. And Larissa, Larissa, you know, I met Larissa years and years before and she was one of my close friends uh, when, I, when I came to New York as a young man. And I looked up to her because I felt like she had a very uh, distinctive bohemian spirit. I remember her vividly telling me one night, sitting at Bartoback, very, very late, explaining how she had been in a, in a version of, um, she was like, yes, I was in a version of the Soviet Union's Girl Scouts. And I was like, oh, it was like the Girl Scouts? And she was like, yes, it was like the Girl Scouts, but we have actual AK-47s, and we learn how to field strip them, and I know how to carry them over my head as I walk through a freezing river. You have to do that to pass to get into the Girl Scouts. And so I felt like a person who had that kind of fortitude would be the right person to make 29 oil paintings in two months. <coughs> She'd also always been possessed of a certain perfectionism, you know, which I think afflicts and also drives forward many artists where, um, you know, they have that expression, the perfect is the enemy of the good. I love that expression. I've often wanted to write it over my bed, except every time I write it, I get it a little bit wrong, and then I erase it, and then I try to write it again, and I don't get it quite right, and I erase it again, and it's just going on and on fucking like that. 
that's not true. I've never tried to write it over my bed, but I think you take what I'm saying, that she always possessed of a certain singular vision, you know, very much like the vision of that particular Muppet on The Muppet Show, the one who plays the piano, who bangs his head into the keys of the keyboard when he doesn't get it quite right, and he's like, I'll never get it right! And he's just like, and you're like, no, what are you talking about? It's wonderful. And so I felt like it was a gift to both of us, because she would show me different works, and every time she showed me something, it would come this incredible, very Russian story. Everything had a story. The story usually went, Michael, I am showing this to you, but it is shit. It is shit on canvas. It is steaming and dripping down. I don't want to look at it, and no one should look at it. And I think, the, don't, look, don't look at it, but you must look at it. We're out of time. Now look at this pile of garbage. I would look at it, and I'd be like, that's... It really seems, that seems amazing to me. It seems remarkable. And she would look at me, this interesting combination of a kind of like incandescent fury um, because she knew it was terrible, but then also simultaneously accepting that it was in fact the thing that was going to happen. And as we went forward, uh, she f- tried valiantly to keep up, but she couldn't keep up. And so we actually had that crazy place where the last paintings in the sequence were not done by the time the show was opening. So now the show is opening, but each night I'm using up one of the paintings that's already done, and we're burning through them while she's still painting the paintings that come at the end, and the show I'm creating, night after night, that is live composed, is influencing the nature of the choices she's making at the end. So she comes to the shows and sees the things, and then repaints the paintings that she sees at the end, and then those paintings, pictures get taken and sent to me, and I look at them and she says, it's garbage. I'm like, I don't have time for it to be garbage, because this is the theater. We put garbage on stage all the time. (laughs) The lights will come up and there needs to be a painting there, motherfucker. I don't care. It's gonna have to be done. And so it's an amazing thing to see her get the final word because I, of course, am a plebeian. I'm I'm largely a moron. And so to me, uh, the paintings were beautiful and uh, exquisite. I'm still very honored. I have Uh, Two of them in my apartment right now. I look at them constantly. Larissa, however, being Russian, had a different opinion of her own work, which you can see on display here, because these paintings of hers in this sequence are all detailed paintings from the paintings of all the faces of the moon, where very clearly she was like, now that I have shat out that enormous, ridiculous project, I will now take years to rework tiny elements of it until they are actually correct. And you'll see in the names of some of these, for instance, this is the fool's dog, the fool's dog's whistle, heard. And the fool, one of the tarot, the major arcana, and the original painting is an entire image, and there's a tiny dog in the corner. And this is, I presume, the dog and his whistle responding. And all of these have that element where it's a tiny part of a larger whole. And it's so hard to extract the story of the thing that's created from the thing itself. You know? Like, is, is the painting as good if it does not have the story attached? Are they good if just to stand on their own? Is the image of the thing enough? When you look at the pattern of it, and you see the way the light and color and shadow follow one another... Or once it is titled, and we look at the title, and we know the semiotics of that, and suddenly we create a narrative that we hear from it. You know, how does that change how we see it? I've always been fascinated by this, fascinated by how context shifts everything you see. 
Um, that's why I never believed in museums particularly. I never believed in the idea that a white wall is a absent space. Maybe because I work in the theater, where in the theater they made the opposite decision and a black wall is a negative space. And there's something about coming from both those worlds that makes you realize it is in a sense an arbitrary decision. You're just deciding that something is neutral and that everything else put against it is then in a neutral space, but nothing is neutral. Everything is a moving train. We are all in motion together in this place. This artist, who we are so lucky to be in the presence of, and I've been so lucky to have my life, who walked through a freezing river holding her AK-47 over her head, this woman who did these things is only here because her country felt so unsafe, so restrictive, so small, and so small as a place she could imagine that she had to risk everything in her life, give up everything in her life to come to this place. And she could not have known at the moment she did that, that not many years later, that country would change entirely. The Soviet Union does not exist anymore. It does not. It, it simply doesn't exist. And I'm old enough to remember that moment, to remember the moments that the Soviet Union stopped existing. And how quickly reality reasserts itself. How quickly we all know that that is received history. Of course. Of course the Soviet Union collapsed. Why do we know that? We know that because the system was unsustainable. Why do we know that? Because it collapsed. It becomes a beautiful circle, doesn't it? Like we know it collapsed and therefore it's unsustainable. But the fact is we didn't actually know it. It actually was tremendously surprising. Tremendously surprising. Just as things surprise us constantly every day. Like we're constantly surprised by the things that are happening right now. And we are in a place where uh, if someone today were to leave their country and come here, those doors are closing. They're closing or closed, and uh, largely they would not be able to find a place to come. This is not a place for that. And that is a decision that closes not just the doors of who is allowed to come. It actually makes the place smaller. Like the amount of imagination that is possible for what the place can contain actually shrinks. You shrink the frame. You change the boundaries of what is possible in the bonded space by making the space smaller. This is no longer a space that contains multitudes. It's no longer a space that could contain anyone. It contains those who are here, and it is for those who are here. And you make that choice in order to shrink the frame, because something inside a shrunken frame, as you make the frame smaller and imagination shrinks, it is easier to control people whose imagination is smaller. In fact, if the imagination gets small enough, it becomes the kind of space where the kind of people who make art in the first place, people who spend the night at a sleepaway camp where they've walked through a river holding a rifle over their heads, might actually consider the terrifying idea that they, as a young person, might have to leave this place, maybe never see their people again, maybe make a wild leap in the dark to do something else and not know what that thing is going to be. Isn't that remarkable? That we have this thing in us, that we might know that something is so possible elsewhere and never having actually experienced it, but still throw ourselves into the night, hurl ourselves into that door and beyond it without knowing what is actually there. I think we do that because of the imagination the imagination of the artist that calls to us, 
something tangible and real that says that there is a larger world, that there's a larger world, that all these things, color and hue, saturation, the sound of a beautiful voice, a strange story told elliptically, all these things are indicators of something bigger, a vast shared thing, the imagination, something that endures and is deeper than any one of us, that is a human quality, and it is out of that ocean, that deep place, that we draw up strength, and it is out of that thing that we find ourselves compelled to make wild choices, do things others can't accept. And when we go to shows like these, when we spend the night, or part of it, looking at the art, but not staring too long, eating the brie and drinking the fizzy water, having a little glass of white wine, hearing some engaging talk, it seems light. Very rarely someone leaves an event like this and says, I was changed forever. Because those are not the terms of the artistic experience we are having. But I would argue it might actually be a deeper thing that these things, when we make them inside our communities, is actually that thing that has become such, a, such an almost tired word. That's the thing that ties us. That's the bindings between us, is that we came to a place some people said some things, some art was shown, and we made a decision together to actually participate in it. And that that is the one thing, the one thing we have that actually increases the size of the frame. Thank you.